Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, salam, and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. I'm your co-host, Shahna Zaqani. In today's episode, I speak with Yusuf Sufi about his book, The Rise of Critical Islam, 10th through 13th Century Legal Debate, published with Oxford University Press in 2023. The book is a fascinating and engaging and excellent exploration of the history of critique in Islamic legal and intellectual history. It does this specifically through a case study of dispensations and disputations known as munadharat in Arabic. Dispensations were a practice of debates that were an important feature of a jurist's practice and an opportunity for him to showcase his juristic skills. For instance, they were sometimes tasked with having to defend a position that they disagreed with personally or that contradicted the opinion of the school that they followed and represented in these debates. Ultimately, these dispensations served as an excellent, or they do serve as an excellent um, case study of the tremendous diversity of thought and the celebration of difference of opinion in Islamic history and Islamic law. They also show that for Muslim jurists, engaging in these debates was an act of piety as a part of their personal and intellectual quest to discover God's law. In our conversation today, we discuss the origins of the book, some of its main points and arguments, a detailed description of these dispensations, such as who participated in them, who was excluded from them, how the topic, how the debate topic was chosen, the shifts and developments that they undergo with time, and the role of ijtihad, or independent reasoning or reinterpretations of Islamic law, and taqlid, or sticking to the past scholarly opinions in these debates. We also discuss, discuss specific themes such as child or forced marriages, women's rights to divorce, which are both of which are perceived to have been settled matters, but it turns out not quite. And finally, Sufi explains why and how these disp- disputations came to an end and what jurists participating in them may have imagined to be the role of later generations in the process of Islamic lawmaking. Here now is my conversation with Yusuf Sufi about the rise of critical Islam, 10th through 13th century legal debate. Salam. Hi, Yusuf. Thank you so, so much for willing to talk to me about your amazing book, The Rise of Critical Islam, 10th through 13th century legal debate. Thank you for having me, Dr. Hakani. Absolutely. So it is our tradition on the podcast to ask our guests to tell us about themselves, to describe their intellectual journey. So who are you and how did you enter the field? Yeah, so uh, so I'm a Canadian scholar. I'm up north from uh, for where, from where most scholars of Islamic studies are in the U.S. Um, I did my training at the University of Toronto um, under uh, Enver Iman, who's my supervisor, but also with uh, with Mohammed Fadl um, and Amir Mittermeier, who's who does uh, anthropology, uh, who who definitely exposed me to anthropological debates in Islamic studies. Before that, I had some training in debates on multiculturalism and and political theory. And after doing the PhD, I worked at the University of British Columbia for some time. And and I 
think this book, this book is very intertwined with that period. This book is, is based on my dissertation, but it's changed a lot uh, since then. Uh, during the years that I was at UBC, University of British Columbia, I fell ill. Um, I had a cancer diagnosis. And uh, after going, it was a brief treatment, so I was very fortunate. But after undergoing a brief treatment, I really felt like, I, I felt two things. One, I, I really wanted to get the dissertation book out. I really wanted to, to get these ideas out. Um, you start to realize when you get that type of diagnosis, you're not sure how much time you'll have left. And um, and I felt like this was a project that was that was undone until it, it came to, to publication. And I also thought a lot about my students. Um, and, uh, you know, when you first enter the classroom, having done a PhD or just finishing up your PhD, you, you start to present things in a very complex ways, uh, in, in very complex ways, uh, in ways that, that uh, make sense to you as somebody who's, who's read and studied for so long. But you start to see those expressions on your students' faces, those blank expressions, and you start to realize what, what appeals to them, what type of language appeals to them, what resonates with them, what, what debates matter to them. And so, you know, when you, when you talk about the narrative style of the work, um, it's in large part me thinking about my students and saying, okay, you know, I, I did do this research because um, I, I, I wanted to do something that I felt was relevant to our contemporary moment, to contemporary uh, Muslims, Muslim communities in particular. And I, I thought, okay, what, what can my students uh, read? What would they want to read? Um, and yeah, so a lot of the journey of writing this book was, was shifting that, that um, dissertation into something that would be a little bit more readable. Now, at a certain point, I also had to make sure I was getting all the references in because I do want it to have a certain academic rigor. Um, but, but I started off by just, you know, I would, I would spend, uh, you know, the UBC campus is beautiful. It's the West coast, right? So I would spend time outdoors, a couple of hours every morning, uh, doing my writing. And I refused to have, um, my books beside me at the time. I, I knew the information cause I had done my dissertation, but I said, okay, let's just write it. Let's just write it in a way that, uh, would make sense that would be fluid for for the students. I think in the end it's still a very complex work and and I know some of my students are still on chapter 1 after a few months. But um but that's you know that's that's the trajectory of the book. Uh that's kind of the the background to the writing of the book. So thank you for that intro. Can you describe the main ideas or arguments of the book? And this is I think of this as some takeaways of the book for those listeners who might not have time to read the entire book or to listen to the entire interview. Just what, you know, what are some some main points of the book? And also, what does the word critical, what does critical Islam mean um, in the entitled the book? Yeah, there, there's a few ways that we can look at the, the, the main argument or the main contribution of the book. Um, one way is to think about um, our contemporary period and to think about how, particularly in the West, um, Islam and critique have been talked about. So we've had in the last 30, 40 years, uh, several different controversies, international controversies, the Rushdie affair, the uh, Danish cartoons, the Charlie Hebdo uh, murders, where uh, in the aftermath of, of, uh, of uh, um, uproar from Muslims or of, uh, of a tragedy from some Muslims or a tragedy, 
uh, oftentimes the media, some uh, academics, pundits, have presented Muslims in Islam as lacking in criticality. And one thing that this book does, and, and, and also coupled with that is this idea that religion in general is not so uh, amenable uh, to critique, and that therefore secularization is, is, is the solution. Uh, one thing that this book does is there is a uh, uh, an uncovering, an uncovering of a uh, culture of Muslims, um, and not only a culture of Muslims, but a legal one, because oftentimes, you know, it's it's the law that's seen as the uncritical part of Islam. This idea of creeping Sharia that's a threat, um, but uh, a legal culture where critique was um, a, 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 a paramount value. Uh, for these jurists, for these um, scholars that uh, essentially elaborated upon the law. Not only that, but this, cult this culture, um, we can trace it back to a period when um, a lot of the uh, classical doctrines of Islamic law uh, take shape uh, and the justifications for the law. So it focuses on uh, Iraq and Persian lands uh, like northeastern Khorasan, in from the 10th to the 13th centuries, um, talking a little bit about um, the lands of, of the Levant region where a lot of the scholarship migrates after um, after being so important or being um, after Iraq and, and the Persian lands were at the forefront of scholarship. Um, and uh, so so that's that's one way to look uh, at, at the book and the contribution of the book. Another way, and this is, is more for the, the expert of, of Islamic law, is to think about how um, to um, reconceive this, this time period, uh, the 10th to 13th centuries. Um, oftentimes, this is seen as a period where jurists, they've, they've inherited uh, formative doctrines. So, you know, they, they've inherited from these great scholars like Abu Hanifa and the Shafi and Malik from the 8th and 9th centuries. They've inherited doctrines, and now they're in the process of refining them. They're in the process of deciding um, which out of conflicting points of view, perspectives, is, is the right one. And they're headed towards some sort of teleology. They're heading towards the completion of the Madhab. But what I've found is that, um, in fact, this this uh, time period um, is one where the law is uh, really quite open. And the reason why the law is open is because there's this widespread consensus, um, not complete consensus, but there's this 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 widespread agreement, let's say, um, starting in about the the 10th century, the jurists have, because by virtue of the fact they are trained to understand the law, they have this responsibility to think for themselves. Now, that doesn't mean that they have to diverge from their teachers. They may learn what their teachers have told them, say, well, this is great information. This is a great perspective, great point of view. And they could replicate it. But the point is that they need to evaluate the arguments in great detail. And in fact, this, this term had that is oftentimes used in our scholarship and in contemporary um, in, uh, contemporary times amongst Muslims who are trying to rethink the law, this term had uh, we've oftentimes come to see it as um, the, the, the jurists 
uh, engagement with legal theory to come up with a completely new ruling, being incredibly creative in their engagement. But ijtihad in this time period, from the 10th to the 13th century, just meant that the jurist did his effort to come up with a ruling. And in order to um, come up, uh, to, to do his effort, this jurist needed to weigh evidence. And the book examines this, this, this period of ijtihad, this culture of ijtihad, this culture of critique, uh, by uh, looking at a practice called the munazara, uh, the disputation. And the disputation was this face-to-face -face engagement, this face-to-face -face debate between two jurists. Um, and one of the jurists would say, okay, my opponent, welcome to this debate. What's your point of view on so-and-so legal topic, contested legal topic? And the other jurist would say, okay, well, this is my perspective. This is my point of view. And the first uh, jurist, the one who is known as the questioner, would say, okay, that's fine. Now what's your evidence for it? And again, now the, the, the other jurist, who is known as the respondent, would say, well, this is my evidence for it. This is my argument for it. Now the questioner after that, now that he had, now that he knew uh, the premise upon which the, the, the jurist uh, supported his, his position, would say, okay, well, I have these objections. And uh, the questioner uh, was supposed to be ruthless. He was supposed to try his utmost to discredit the position of the opposing jurist. And the idea was that in doing so, this was part of ijtihad. This was part of how the jurist could get to their own personal, as very personal, their own personal view of what uh, God's law was on any particular legal question. And so, you know, the, the book is titled The Rise of, of Critical Islam. And Critical Islam uh, refers to this, this period of time where for the legal scholars, this, this period of ijtihad, the law is, uh, is dependent on critique and ongoing critique. Even if previous jurists have looked at a question, the next generation, because they're accountable before God, is it's, it's becoming upon them to look at it again and to probe uh, the evidence that, they, that their teachers have told them about uh, or that other jurists have posited. Um, and I should also add that the, the title, The Rise of Critical Islam, part of it is, is documented in this, this time period, this 10th to the 13th century, where disputation really takes hold. Um, you know, we know that disputation exists in the second century, of, of uh, the Hijri calendar, so the, uh, the eighth century. But this is a time period where um, it really gets incorporated within the school curriculum. And there are theoretical books, books of Jadal, that people like Walter Young have done a lot of research on that be, uh, start to get written uh, and taught within, within the madrasas, within the colleges. Um, so, but the, the, the notion of the rise of, of critical Islam um, is, is also a tribute to George Maktasi, whose book, uh, The Rise of Colleges, a classic work that documents the, the emergence of the madrasa in the 11th century, and that really tries to flesh out the pedagogy of the school, the type of teachers that were there, the type of students that were there. Maktasi really got the ball rolling on the study of, of the disputation, these face-to-face -face debates, the munadra. Um, and so in a way, it's it's continuing uh, Maktasi's labors. 
largely by using sources that he didn't have access to or didn't use at the time. And that was when you're when you're um, so each chapter has examples of disputations and um, I mean very very fun to read because I again like I could feel like I was in this in the audience that was watching them. So how is the questioner? Is it is it the the person who the is one of the folks determining the topic? Who's determining the topic of these disputations? Um, because I feel like at least in one of the chapters it was a third party that determined the question. Um, and then they have they have an audience um, where who are there are there some schools that are more famous for doing these disputations who could participate in them are is it only jurists a little bit more on the dispute the disputations and what what the audience is like and how these are determined how the topics are determined and yeah absolutely and and who okay so first who who is in attendance um that would depend on the occasion so we have records uh, of some uh, disputations, some oral debates that take place uh, in a very mundane way at uh, a person's house, like a, a judge's house. Like there's mention of such and such judge uh, held a gathering of a disputation at his house each Thursday. Um, and um, it, it would also happen um, in, in the training of jurists. Um, so, um, you know, um, uh, Al-Khatib al-Baghdadi talks about um, the uh, the necessity of a professor to incorporate uh, the uh, the disputation within the training of his students. Um, I think he says like at least once a week, and I think he recommends on Fridays. Um, but in any case, um, um, it's part of the training of of uh, of advanced students to to engage in these disputations and so presumably in in that situation it's just fellow students from the same school from the same college looking at it but it can also happen in in more festive occasions right so if a uh, professor is appointed to a madrasa that may be an occasion for a disputation um if a uh, scholar is visiting from out of town that's definitely an occasion for disputation because it's, you know, it's kind of like in the modern university. If somebody's coming from out of town to your home university and they're uh, somebody well known, you want to hear from them. You want to know firsthand, you know, not just their books, but firsthand. You want to gain knowledge from them. You want to ask them questions. So, so that was that was oftentimes an occasion for disputation, and that in those instances would uh, would be a reason for jurists from different schools to come together and hear from this visiting uh, jurist debating a, a local jurist. Um, one particular instance that's very interesting that that I focus on in chapter one is in the uh, in a, a period of mourning after a funeral. So if somebody passes away, and this was this was distinctly a practice in Baghdad, at least um, at least according to uh, Abu Walid al Baji, who who records this this disputation uh in a period of mourning uh the scholars of baghdad would um go to the masjid and only engage in in acts of piety while they received condolences from their neighbors from fellow jurists from loved ones and um one of the things that they would do is is recite the quran during that time but they would also perhaps uh, it seems odd from our modern perspective but they would also engage in debates and disputations because it was seen as this act of piety um you know in 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 the aftermath of losing somebody that you love there's this idea in the islamic tradition of of remembering one's ultimate destiny one's return to god and so in this moment by engaging in these disputations it's seen as you know um in some ways, uh, an act of piety that reminds the self of God. 
um, and that there's a service to the Muslim community. So that was another occasion where where people would um, would uh, would engage in disputations. And the audience was supposed to uh, conform to a certain set of ethics. They were supposed to listen carefully. And uh, Al-Baji tells us that sometimes they would try to memorize what they had learned, but it wasn't customary to write them down. Um, so we have so few transcripts of, of disputations. And one of the things that um, we're, we're lucky to have is um, we have four disputations from the famed 11th century jurist, Shafi jurist, Abu Ishaq al-Shirazi. Um, and uh, and al-Shirazi really takes center stage in this book. He's in many ways the protagonist uh, of this book. And in terms of, of what's left out, um, so this is, this is a, uh, it's okay, so it's ijtihad, it's part of ijtihad, it's a practice, a, a pious practice, but it's also, it's a, it's a practice for jurists. And at this time, when we take a look at biographies of jurists in Iraq, in Persia, uh, it's overwhelmingly, uh, um, it's, it's men. It's really, it's a men's, men, men's domain. And it's in many ways, um, elite men, not in the sense of, you know, Makdisi shows us, we know that you have uh, jurists from different backgrounds. Shirazi himself was very poor, um, but they are elite in the sense that they've had rigorous training. And because of that rigorous training, they take on a certain importance in society as professors of the law, as uh, judges, they get appointed as judges by the state. And they also um, uh, have this function of uh, of mufti of of uh, a juris consult of of responding to lay Muslims that have questions about the law, and what you see in in disputations, and you can see this because disputations are so detailed and rigorous in their argumentation and in their desire to find justification, is that oftentimes the jurists, although they said you know the reason we exclude lay Muslims is because they don't have the proper training and it's actually a mercy upon them because, you know, these uh, lay Muslims that are engaged in cultivating their fields or raising their children or uh, doing business, they don't have the time to come to the to the madrasa, to the mosque every day and to learn the law. That's a, it's a very arduous work. So we're alleviating them of that burden. We're taking care of that for them. But despite that, that justification, at a certain point, you come to see that a lot of the uh, the law is uh, is it depends upon certain assumptions, uh, assumptions about the needs, desires, uh, wants of of lay Muslims. So, just to give you an example that comes out in chapter one, and in chapter one, there's this this debate uh, between a Shirazi and a Damarani, a Shirazi being a Shafi, a Damarani being a Hanafi. Um, over whether a uh, a woman whose husband is struggling to provide for her financial care or maintenance has a right to petition a judge for divorce will be granted divorce by a judge. Um, the there was no disagreement among the two schools about you know the woman's entitlement to that financial maintenance. Um, but whereas the Shafi said, okay, after three days, if a husband is not providing things like clothing, shelter, um, uh, food, then a woman can go tell the judge, you know, I'm being neglected and 
um, be freed from her marriage, be uh, the, the two be separated. The Hanafis felt like the poverty was was not a justification for separating people. I think Ashebani, the the famous early Hanafi scholar of the eighth, uh, ninth, eighth slash ninth, tenth. Uh, pardon me, eighth slash ninth uh, century CE. Um, said, you know, the the prophet's community was a community of poverty, and and it would be odd to say that the the, the um, companions' uh, families could be broken up because of poverty. So they recommended um, loans instead, uh, that uh, the husband contract a loan in order to be able to provide for um, his uh, wife's uh, financial uh, maintenance, her right to that that financial maintenance. And um, as as the debate unfolds, there's uh, um, certain uh, arguments that were well known amongst the Hanafis and the Shafis that come up. So, for instance, the the um, the Hanafis, uh, the Shafis say, oh, well, the Hanafis say, you know, um, in the case of impotence, um, we. Um, or sorry, sorry, the Shafis say, in the case of of impotence, you Hanafis agree that we can separate. The, the husband and wife, but um, food is and, and shelter is is a much more serious concern because the the human body depends upon these things. And then the Hanafis say, well, it's it's a it's it's a different situation because um, a um, in the case of of impotence, a wife's sexual um, wants can't be fulfilled unless she's separated and able to marry somebody else, uh, but she can get a loan if they're poor. Um, and so what you start to see is is these these claims about um, what's better for a woman in these instances. And they're logical claims, right? Nobody's going to say that after three days without food, uh, it's not a serious situation. But what's interesting is that they're coming up with solutions without empirically consulting women. And so I'm very influenced in this book by um, critiques of, of Jürgen Habermas's um, um, this this ideal of like if you have critique and you have a dialogical exchange, that you're going to be able to arrive at um, um, that it's an ideal speech situation, and that you're going to be able to arrive at um, at norms um, that are uh, that are just. And you know, uh, uh, scholars like uh, Nancy Fraser, uh, James Tully, Marion Iris Young within political science really take. Habermas to task by saying, you know, there's always within any type of dialogical exchange, uh, people being excluded. So whether we're talking about Western critique in our contemporary moment, or we're talking about Islamic critique from the 10th to the 13th centuries, we may be impressed by what both cultures are able to do, but we also have to recognize the limits, the limitations of that of those forms of critique. Um, and certainly uh, in, in, in the Islamic context, the fact that lay Muslims are not included, I think, impoverishes um, the, uh, the process of ijtihad, impoverishes the, uh, the, the, the critical aspirations of the jurists. And, and I think it's very important to say that it's their own touchstone. It's their own measure. It's the jurists themselves that say critique is very important. We, we want to be rigorous. We want to eliminate any, any positions that are not uh, fully justified um, by, by rationality. And then they seem to omit, forget that they could be enriching the debate. If 
they countenanced empirically some of those wants and desires uh, of lay Muslims. And because the jurists were men, particularly of women, I would say. And, and that's what was really, um, because you point out too in, in the book that this, you know, consulting um, either whether it's lay people or whether it's the folks that you're talking about directly in the case, in this case, a woman who wants a divorce or, um, or just women in general, when they're talking about women's issues specifically, um, and it would really enrich them, especially because, as you point out, in one of the purposes of these debates is to broaden their horizons or to broaden their understandings and to try to reach uh, what they know, because nobody's certain. And they're very clear about this. And the book is very clear about this. And I think Islamic legal scholarship generally is very clear that nobody's certain about any one conclusion, but that they're trying so desperately hard to figure out what exactly God is wanting from us and what is the right thing, the ethical or the pious thing to do here. And it's just, I know it's like, you know, my modern training that it's, I'm, I'm thinking by excluding this very essential group of people, you're just, you're going to be one step farther from whatever quote unquote the truth might be. Um, but the humility, I think the humility aspect in these, in, in, in the disputations was very, was very clear. And I really appreciated that. So can you tell us a little bit more about what, um, what exactly ijtihad and taqlid have to do with, with this discussion? Because it, my impression is um, that it seems like the taqlid plays a different role in the later generation, no, in the earlier generations' ways of doing these disputations versus the later ones. Like by the time that we're getting too close to a waning of this um, intellectual exercise, taqlid is now, and it means something else now than it did in the earlier generation. I, you point out in the book that ishtihad, we think of we think of it today as independent reasoning, but for the earlier scholars, it wasn't just independent reasoning. It was an essential part of, you know, of being an, um, being a, being a jurist. And um, it wasn't um, seen as something, you know, that you had to, you, it wasn't necessarily seen as contradicting um, other, and it wasn't contrary to taqlid. So can you tell us about what the, what, what ishtihad and taqlid have to do, what, what they meant for these jurists and how they applied them in these, um, in these disputations? Mm -hmm. So I think if we look at texts of of usul al fiqh of of legal theory or of the the sources of the law in this period, I'm 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 fairly confident that for for most jurists, uh, some Hanafis may be a little bit of an exception there, but for most jurists, they they just saw themselves as doing ijtihad, all of them, and and uh, without qualification. It's like we're doing ijtihad. Doesn't matter if we're replicating what our predecessors have said or our colleagues say. What matters is that we've verified the law. We've we've looked at it closely. We've 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 thought about it monologically. Uh, we've thought about it ourselves, and we've thought about it dialogically in these debates, these oral debates, these disputations with others. So that's ijtihad, and legal scholars just do ijtihad. They don't do anything else in this era. So you know, if I'm I'm, I'm particularly thinking about the 10th and 11th centuries, it's pretty much unanimity uh, that that that's what we're doing as jurists. We're engaging in ijtihad and to Taqlid is reserved spe uh, specifically for lay Muslims. They don't have the tools to um, understand the law. And so they do taqlid by asking us what the law is, and they don't have evidence for their positions. So they're allowed to um, follow our position when it comes to ritual matters, when it comes to you know, family law, inheritance, whatever. They'll follow our position. But we ourselves, we, we get it straight from the source meaning we are able to grapple with the arguments that justify these positions. 
So that's that's how I understand ijtihad in in this uh, let's say the the tenth and eleventh centuries, and that means like if you if you have to engage with the sources and come up with your own opinion, that means we're going to be ruthless in our in our debates, in our disputations, in our critique. What seems to happen later on, let's say we we fast forward and and we're going to stick just with the Shafi school here. Um, let's fast forward to um, the. Um, the 13th century, uh, and let's let's take a look at a different geographical location than Iraq or Persia. Let's take a look at Damascus. If we take a look at what uh, Ibn Salah, um, the famous hadith and legal scholar of the Shafi school, the Dar al Hadith, uh, and, and professor of the Dar al Hadith College in in uh, in Damascus in Syria, and what and Nawawi, um, the famous hadith and legal scholar of of the Dar al Hadith. Uh, um, uh, Shafi scholar of the Dar al Hadith College say they look back at this period in time, uh, the last you know three hundred years or so, and they say, well, you know what? Actually, the the uh, the jurists were engaged in taqlid because taqlid and ijtihad admit of gradation and they they can overlap in several ways. So, you know, a scholar like Shirazi in the 11th century is refining the law, but he's not coming up with anything new and therefore he's engaging in taqlid. Um, he's not coming up with a new position. He's just kind of weighing either conflicting positions, a process known as, uh, as taqrij, um, or he's weighing different evidence, a process known as tarjih. So that's what he's doing. And, and it only uh, becomes more taqlid based as we pass from one generation to the next. So there seems to be this real shift in the understanding of ijtihad and taqlid by that uh, period of time. And in the book, I try to trace just for the Shafi school, some of the, the discursive changes that take place to arrive at, at that understanding of, of ijtihad and taqlid. But one of the things that interests me is, is to think about how, okay, so you get this shift in the understanding of ijtihad and taqlid. How does this affect critique? How does this affect uh, the disputation? And, you know, uh, Ibn Khaldun in his Muqaddimah states quite, a, quite bluntly that the practice of disputation was waning in his time. Um, so I think... Um, so, so, so Ibn Khaldun is making this judgment in the the thirteenth, perhaps fourteenth century. Um, I'll have to check that out. But closer to to uh, to Anawawi and Ibn Salah than to people like Shirazi. So he's making this 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 blunt uh, statement that disputation has waned, and 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 I'm wondering, in the final chapter of the book, if there's a relationship between this waning of the disputation and uh, the shift in taqlid. And certainly you can find hints of it. Like Al-Ghazali, for instance, says, you know, nowadays, and this is, so he's writing end of the 11th century CE, beginning of the 12th century CE. He says, nowadays, um, people will hold on to their, um, their legal position, even when they lose disputations. And they'll say, well, you know, I'm not as bright as as the master jurist in my school, if I was as bright as him, then I'd be able to to uh, to uphold this position. And Ghazali, even though you know, 11th century is still a time where ijtihad is is uh, most of the 11th century at least, where ijtihad for the scholar is 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 seen as a responsibility. Um, he says, well, okay, if this is the case, then you know, 
they're not really engaging in ijtihad. And even more than that, what's the point of, of, of these disputations? What's the point of critique if they're going to hold on to their position? And so there seems to be this, this, this relationship between, okay, if I'm not willing to uh, let the law be open and let myself as a jurist be affected by critique, um, then instead of placing authority on argument and disputation, authority seems to be uh, placed on the on the, the legal school, the medhab, uh, the pronouncements of past jurists and the books that I'm reading now as a jurist, right? So there seems to be that shift. The disputation continues even in the, the period that I'm talking about. Um, and now we didn't like to, to engage in disputation, which is interesting because you know, he's seen as such an important scholar within the Shafi school, but other contemporaries of his definitely did. So the disputation continues, but it does seem to matter less to the process of ijtihad. Um, and so there seems to be a relationship between the, uh, you know, what scholars like like uh, Sherman Jackson have called the, um, the uh, what is it, the, the, um, the regime of taqlid, the, uh, the, the dominance of taqlid, and um, a waning of an imperative to critique. Thank you so much for that. I would love to he um I'd love to cover all of the different disputations they cover, like unforced marriage and the qibla and the or the you know mis uh, mistakenly praying in the um in, in a different in the wrong direction, um and and then learning with certainty that that was the case. But I just because it's personally relevant to my research, uh, the, 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 the disputation on forced marriage, can you summarize to our audience what is happening in that specific moment and what the, who the two uh, colleagues are that are debating this topic of forced marriage? Because I, the question that I'd like to ask there is how it is that Al-Jawaini can argue against forced marriage during his own manadara, during his own disputation, but then personally hold a different position that position also is loyal to his school, because what does it say about scholar? What does it what does it mean? What does it say that this these scholars can hold like they know this, and he seems so certain. I mean, I know there's like a lack of certainty, and that's like one of the major points here. But he does such a brilliant job, right? Like arguing against his school here, uh, but then yeah. just hold that position. How is that? How is that possible? What is what is happening there? Hmm. Hmm. It's an excellent question. All right. Let's let's first say that um, there's this idea uh, that, uh, and and maybe El Ghazali is responsible for this because he, oh, and you had asked, are certain schools of law more given to disputation than others? Certainly, the Hanafis and the Shafis uh, were the two schools that debated the most. So you, of course, the Hanbalis were part of the mix too. The Malikis are are so um, um, are not so prominent in in Baghdad, in in Iraq during this time period. So they matter less. You do find records of Dahiris debating, but the Shafis and the Hanafis seem to be the two schools that debate. In fact, I think Al-Ghazali calls them uh, Al-Fariqain, the two parties. Um, but um, 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 yeah, there's this idea that, you know, the disputation, uh, you know, Magdasi ta- ta- told us, and he's right, that there's this pedagogical dimension to the disputation. But there's also this sense that it's like it's, it's upholding the school honor. And definitely it is. There's certain disputations where it's clear two towering jurists from different schools are meeting and they are representing their methab, they're representing their legal school um, and the honor of their legal school and the fact that they they, ha- they, they are justified in their positions because they're going to show it publicly that they can defend themselves. But 
you know, if you look at texts of usul al-fiqh, again, like, like I gestured towards earlier, um, the primary justification for the disputation was, was not upholding a school doctrine. In fact, that would be seen as violating this kind of like responsibility before God for finding the truth. It's 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 finding the truth. It's doing ijtihad. It's it's trying your utmost to broaden your horizons, as you said. And so, this meant that jurists would allow themselves to critique their school, and and rigorously. And so, the background to this disputation on forced marriage is that Ishrazi, late in his life, he's this this towering figure in Baghdad. He is the professor, the head professor of the Nizamiya of Baghdad, and he's been sent on a political mission to do, to give some letters to uh, the wazir, Nizam al-Mulk, and to the uh, sultan um, at the time, who are uh, camped out in battle, in um, or whose armies at least are camped out in Khurasan. So Shirazi goes with a, a party of other scholars um, and prominent figures to 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 give these letters, um, and at the same time, he also arranges for the uh, marriage uh, of the daughter of the sultan. So this is the Seljuk sultan uh, to the uh, to the caliph uh, in Baghdad, and uh, and and when he arrives in the uh, the the. Central town of of Nishapur, in Khorasan, he's greeted by his kind of his his friend, um, old acquaintance, and the his counterpart, the the other towering jurist uh, of the Shafis of the time, Abu Al Mahali Al Juaini, um, who is the head of the Nizamiya of of Nishapur at the time. And um, in this context. They organize a disputation and uh, this uh, debate gathering, and we have two transcripts of debates between or disputations between Juaini, El Juaini, and Shirazi. And one of them is on the question of of forced marriage. Essentially, is it permissible for a father to force his uh, virgin daughter into an unwanted uh, union? And I surmise that that uh, the topic came up uh, because of the fact that uh, Shirazi was arranging for a marriage at the time. So, you know, those in attendance might have wondered, okay, is this legitimate that uh, a woman could be uh, forced against her will into into a marriage? Now, the Shafi position, and and Juwaini, El Juwaini and Shirazi are both Shafis. The Shafi position is that a father does have that right, a father and a grandfather, because both of them are assumed to have uh, love and empathy uh, for uh, their daughter or granddaughter. If it's another guardian, they're not allowed to do that, but a father and a grandfather are allowed. So Juwaini is the questioner in this debate, and he initiates the debate, and he asks Shirazi, okay, Shirazi, What's your position? Predictably, Shirazi says, my position is that um, a father can uh, uh, coerce his daughter into an unwanted marriage if she's a virgin. And then Juwaini asks for evidence. And Juwaini, as he uh, gains that evidence, mounts, as as you said, like a trenchant critique, uh, in some ways a devastating critique of forced marriage. 
Not that Ashrazi isn't able to hold his own. They're both expert professors. Um, it's not like they ended a disputation and and everybody in the in the audience says, okay, forced marriage we, is is discredited forever. But certainly, anybody who's 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 reading this could say, okay, Juani is 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 mounting a, a very good argument. And what's interesting, there's two things that are interesting. Uh, like you said, um, Juani actually subscribed to uh, the view that forced marriage uh, was permissible. A father could coerce his daughter, uh, virgin daughter, into marriage, whether she was a child or an adult, that didn't matter for the Shafi school. So that's one thing that's very interesting. So the question, why did he adopt that position in the disputation? Well, the, the position of the, the, the questioner, the sa'il in Arabic, was uh, was such that uh, Juani didn't need to assert what his position was. He just needed to critique, right? So both the questioner, uh, so both him and uh, Shirazi could hold on to the same position, but as questioner, his job was to scrutinize the evidence. So that's, you know, the reason that he takes on that role questioner. But you may ask, why why bother they're both they're both shafis they both feel like this is the position that's correct and what i'd say is that against the idea that they're just engaging in disputations in cases where they have to defend their school against others against detractors like hanafis the argument is that um shafis cared they cared about rethinking their law uh generation after generation it mattered to revisit that law and uh, one of the things that that shows that because you could say well maybe it's just training for defending against the Hanafi position because the Hanafis I should say uh, did not allow uh, an adult virgin woman to be coerced into marriage but that's not quite it because the Shirazi actually draws on his Shafi school to make his claims it, the Hanafis wouldn't make the claims that he makes because they would disagree with some of the premises so he draws on his Shafi school and in the process shows that the Shafi school, even though all these books say that forced marriage is, uh, is, uh, is, is permissible, that uh, in fact, you can, from a Shafi perspective, a distinctly Shafi perspective, make a case that it's not. Now, what I think that shows is that Juwaini and Shirazi uh, and the Shafis and the jurists at this time more generally are committed to revisiting the law. There's a certain way in which, you know, I make this claim that Juwaini is is perhaps taking the position because he he thought it was more authoritative, that forced marriage is authoritative, meaning like more grounded in the sources, that a forced marriage is legitimate. But he also shows us that methodologically, um, Islamic law in this period of time is 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 fluid, it's open. And that for those in attendance, if they heard those arguments and felt, yes, I'm a Shafi, but I think the, the argument is, is, uh, is sound that uh, forced marriage is not, um, is not a tenable Shafi position, that they not only had the right, but the responsibility to go with that, that other point of view. And so by, by hearing this in attendance, I say that Juwaini keeps alive, at least, the idea of an alternate understanding of the law within the Shafi school. And he shows that the Shafi school, even under this, this veneer of consensus, of, of um, intra-school consensus, that under this veneer, it's, it's a, at least at the oral level, it was understood that the law was far more complicated.
you know, and, and this is, I think that's one of the, one of the reasons why I enjoyed this book so much was that it really helps, um, or using the example of disputations to make a point about Islamic law was really helpful because like here I am thinking, because I found it just confusing. I mean, it was, it's brilliant, right? Of him to, I mean, it's clearly, it's a mark of brilliance to be able to um, support a, an, oppo an opposing position, right? But um, a position that you don't hold, but it, then it had me going, it had me thinking, Huh, if the purpose of these one of the purposes of these disputations is to make you rethink your 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 school's position um to bring you closer to the intention of God if we can ever figure that out. And so here you he did an excellent job, right? I mean his argument was really, really convincing and and as you point out in 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 in, um, in that chapter that Muslims today, reformers especially can use this to this argument today to or Joani's method of um especially his reliance on Maslahat to. Uh, make a point about against um, forced marriages, but to it, it, what it really like on the one hand it was confusing because I'm like, if the whole point is for you to be able to rethink this, the, your school's position, then now you should be more convinced and you should be like you should be trying to advocate for this position because you clearly <laughs> get it right. But on the other hand, it also drives home the point that it's not an individual endeavor, right? Like he and an individual level, he can have he can say these things, but that. Islamic law is a it's it's a gradu it's a it's a progress it's it's a it's a process, and the development of Islamic law the development of traditions is a long process and hopefully you know he's he he's he sows some seed or he sows some seeds and then later on other people can rely on his arguments in in the ways that I hope that we will. But one other ways when I was thinking about how these disputations are helpful in under in helping us understand Islamic law and the development of Islamic law and. Um, the fact that it's not just an individual scholar that determines these things. It is a collective uh, tradition and process. They're not, they're not really using, they're not really referencing scripture, Quran or hadiths uh, in, in most of these discussions. I mean, in some of these, I was, even for the, for the Qibla one, um, I, I remember thinking well, that kind of, that claim contradicts the Quran in this verse or this hadith or and of course for the forced marriage one many hadiths at, at least and some Quranic verses, and that's yet another way that we get a really clear sense of how these disputations um, drive home the point of how Islamic law is being developed. Like there's such an excellent example, uh, such an excellent um, I think way of uh, understanding Islamic law, and it's because Islamic law doesn't always use scripture. Right? Scholars aren't always using scripture to, um, to to support their positions. So, anyway, just in high, just high praises for using it. It's a brilliant book. And brilliant. Yeah. If I, oh, thank you. I mean, if I if I could elaborate upon that a little bit, I think I think the jurists ultimately like there's this this very famous um, article from um, from one of my teachers, mentors, Muhammad Fadl, where uh, he looks at the Medici school and he says you know, istihsan, uh, kind of like the, the personal opinion of jurists are nine-tenths of the law. It's it's a meriki dictum. And and he looks at an example within um, uh, the uh, text of law of Ibn Rushd, the Bidayat al-Mujtahid, to say, to, to make that claim. So I, I, I wouldn't actually agree with with, with that claim, that, that it's, uh, it's just personal discretion. What, what ends up happening in these disputations is they start off with, a source of law. They start off with qiyas, with analogy. And I think one of the reasons they start off with analogy is, um, you know, once you've, once you've exhausted your, um, your scriptural sources, when you get to analogy, 
you can really start to see like, okay, well, why you, you, as a jurist, you ask yourself this question, you say, why did God make the law the way that he did? And analogy, because analogy has this process of, of asking, okay, in this original case, what's the reasoning behind the law? And then you extend it to another case, you're able to really think about, okay, well, what's the reason why this, this, this law was the way it is. So it seems to be like a, uh, an intellectual exercise in in trying to probe the foundations of the law a little bit more. So they start off with the source of the law, but then analogy is this wonderful tool where where um, in a disputation, you know, they're serving so many different um, other legal topics because it's comparing, right? It's comparing one case to another case, and in so doing, the jurists are showing, okay, well, these two cases should be put together because of. X reason. And then the other jurist says, no, 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 these two cases are completely different because of Y reason. And that process of of, of, of comparing and contrasting, that's where I think it's not, it's not, uh, it's not based on scripture. It's it's oftentimes like uh, like like I said in relation to the 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 wife who isn't receiving her maintenance, it seems very empirical, right? So so it seems like uh like like highlighting like, oh, these cases are different for these reasons, and and God would have made them different for these reasons. Um, so ultimately, you know, they, they're they're going back to the sources of the law. But in order to uh, in order to justify qiyas, there's a lot of argumentation, which is it's it's not referring to scripture at all. And and yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Like they're going through so many of these these disputations, and sometimes they'll pull out a hadith. You know, the one on forced marriage is all about a hadith. But I, but most of the time, it's it's qiyas. It's 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 analogy. It's comparing uh, two cases together. And and I think that's where a lot of the intellectual rigor and and um, the argumentative beauty of Islamic law comes to the fore is 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 in their, you know, because when I first started learning about Islamic law, people would say, okay, there's analogy, and they would say analogy was was this kind of last case scenario, right? I think that's how it's presented in a lot of uh, modern texts, either written by by Muslims. Or, um, or kind of like um, contemporary texts giving an introduction to Islamic law. So it's like, you know, you have to rely on textuality. And if you don't find anything there, and it's a really sad situation, and, and it's, you know, by necessity, because we want to be able to, God, because we assume that God addresses everything, but we really can't find a textual um, um, reference for this particular case. Okay, by necessity, we'll use analogy here, and it's almost like this sad, this sad endeavor. But in fact, it's 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 at the heart of the legal science. That's that's where it's at. For for people like Shirazi and Juwaini, their legal brilliance comes from from being able to reason through analogies, and so that's that's where you see the law. That's 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 where you see the law, and that's where they're able to to really probe the foundations of the law. Like, why did God choose this, right? Um, and should we be pointing these together or not? In these debates, one of the things that I also got out was like the, the ways that they're using logic. Like these guys are so brilliant. I mean, they're just they're legal brilliance, right? The way they're using logic to make a particular point. It is so well done. And there there were times and I'm like, I, I would think of something like, oh, he should say this. And then sometimes he would say that or sometimes like, oh, that's actually better than what I was thinking. <laughs> they're so incredibly like the way they're using logic is so powerful. It's and it's so inspiring. Um, so you point out that the 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 they gradually these disputations gradually wane in significance and occurrence by the 13th century. I was wondering for those generations, and then you have a wonderful discussion on, um, you know, on, on why and on the some claims that juristic skills had skill has had ended and so on. But um, 
I was wondering about what they imagined later generations like our own to what, what role they imagined us playing in um, whether in Islamic law, uh, because as you show very well, like there, there also some of these disputations are being done on topics that are perceived as settled debates, but ultimately nothing really is settled. And they're, they have the humility to, to, to recognize that as well. So what role did they see us or later generations playing in, in these disputations? Um, and also why did, if you could summarize for our audience, why, the, why they waned in significance and occurrence by the 13th century? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Dr. Hakani, because I think... I think that's a that's a really important question, and I, I think it goes back to the the biography of this book, the the uh, the genealogy of this book. I um, I really felt when I was reading these disputations um, that there was something special there. Like when I first encountered them, I first encountered them uh, at a point in my um, PhD years where I thought I was going to look at texts of usul al-fiqh exclusively, of legal theory exclusively. And, and I thought I would be comparing um, uh, al-Juwaini and Shirazi's uh, texts of usul al-fiqh to Shafi's from the 11th century, different geographical locations, somewhat different genealogies. But but when I stumbled upon a disputation uh, between them, I, I was gripped by that rigor, by that, that logic that you, you uh, eloquently mentioned um, just a moment ago. And, um, and, and so it, it drew me in because it's, it was a type of argumentation around the law that I've seldom seen uh, among contemporary Muslims. And I'm not trying to make a claim that Muslims are not thinking anymore. We know that that claim, this idea of a golden age in the past, and then Islamic thought wanes, and then Muslims stop thinking. That's not at all what I mean. But there was something about this uh, willingness to uh, critique and be critiqued that I was not, was not familiar from my own experiences within a Sunni uh, Muslim community. And admittedly, that's a limited sample. Uh, it's a Canadian sample, in some ways, um, a sample from the Arab world from the time that I spent there. But, um, you know, it, it spoke to me and I wanted to share with contemporary audiences the relevance of, of these disputations and of this community of the, the 10th to the 13th centuries for um, um, a Western public sphere I was interested in highlighting that maybe we should be cautious when we talk about the promise of secular critique, because Muslims have a lot of resources within their own tradition uh, when it comes to critique. But for Muslims, it was also an occasion to say, maybe we should pay attention to just how open these scholars were to being critiqued. And it was only with time, like even after the dissertation, that I, I really realized the extent to which this idea of ijtihad as this personal quest to to to, um, to find the answer uh, for any legal question, um, this personal quest before God, um, that that I thought, okay, well, one of the things that, it, you know, to go back to your question, what would jurists want today, um, of of Muslims today? I really think that for somebody like Shirazi, like Juwaini, they would say that, well, actually, I'll, I, I won't say Juwaini because in some ways Juwaini starts this trend, you know, Khurasan, Juwaini, Ghazali starts this trend towards accepting 
taqlid by being kind of pessimistic about the abilities of jurists of their times. But let's just stick to somebody like Shirazi, his student Ibn Aqil for sure, um, and the Shafis of of Baghdad of Iraq. I would say that they would they they would they would actually be uh, if you look at their texts of usul fiqh Shirazi's texts of usul fiqh and it's 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 documenting positions of his Shafi school for generations right so he articulates difference of opinion so if he's not mentioning a, a difference of opinion and we don't find it in other usul fiqh texts of of Iraqi Shafis then it's pretty much a unanimous Shafi position his view is if you have the ability to think through the law, if you've been trained as a legal scholar, meaning you understand the law. And we know in contemporary times that lay Muslims in general are far more educated than they were a thousand years ago um, in, in Shirazi's time. And, uh, you know, we we know uh, th that when we look at the criteria of, of what constitutes a mujtahid in that time period, and this is something that Wail Halak had pointed out when he tried to push back against the thesis of the closing of the gate of ijtihad, is that you know doing ijtihad is not that onerous. So if you have the capacity, if you have the ability, I think somebody like a Shirazi would say to contemporary Muslims, you, you have the duty to think for yourself before God. At, and, and with the caveat, and, and this is not necessarily something that lay Muslims need to follow today, but this is what Shirazi would say. He would say, with the caveat of the small subsection of issues that have reached consensus. That seems to be the limit that that somebody like Shirazi would put around around um, every individual who's who's a competent individual search for God's law. I think Shirazi would also say if there's there's a clear text, then also there you have to refer to that clear text. And that's something we hear in a lot of Muslims communities today. But he would say, but in reality, the way that we know there's a clear text is, is consensus. Consensus is what determines that there's actually a clear text. Or, or in many cases, that's what consensus does, is it shows that, you know, this, this text is... Um, perspicuous. It's um, the term that Shafi's used is nas. It's clear. It can't be, uh, it, it, there's no ambivalence in it. We we would all read it and we'd agree upon it. So in effect, it's a very small sliver for Shirazi. Um, and he would say for the rest of it, if you're competent, then you should, you should probe the law. You should, you should question it. You should uh, research it for yourself. And I think he would be disoriented by the later move of Sunnis towards saying, let's give authority to the madhab. And the reason I say that is his student, Ibn Aqil, although from a different madhab, because he was a Hanbali, um, his student, Ibn Aqil, who washed a Shirazi's body and whose own texts on, on disputation or on dialectic jadal, basically texts of jadal, just to fill the audience in, or were, were theoretical works of uh, on disputation. They trained the jurists to be able to go and make competent arguments in, in the debate gathering. Ibn Aqil is 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 uh, quite clear that he he thinks that the that um, the first uh what does he say? What does he say? He says um that taqlid is uh the first step towards the destruction of religion because it's it's taking what's for the lay Muslim and and being appropriated by the the jurist. Uh, and he says and he also says you know you get and I think he blames the Hanafis for this. He says, you get these scholars that say, you know, the jurists of the past were so smart and those of the present can't do anything. They're not, they're not competent enough. And he says, you've really underestimated 
you've underestimated the um the the capabilities that God has given to to human beings to 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 jurists of the present. You're dismissing the present. So, so somebody like Ibn Akhil, at least his argument seems to suggest that Muslims of the present, if they're able to to understand the law, would have that responsibility in in fact to preserve religion, to to avoid this destruction of religion, to think for themselves. I think also um um, um Ibn Akhil says that. Taqlid, the first to engage in taqlid was was the devil, was shaitan, or iblis. And he says this because he says there's a way in which um, instead of deferring to argumentation, uh, iblis deferred to his own ego, right? So there's this real strong condemnation of, of, of taqlid on the part uh, for somebody who's trained. Um, from these jurists in in Iraq, and I'm not going to say it's a consensus. The Hanafi school, for instance, you know, uh, they had different opinions about about whether ijtihad, whether a jurist could do taqlid of another jurist. But even there, if you if you take a look at at, at what they write, they seem to try to find this intermediate position where they 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 allow for taqlid in some instances, but seem to presuppose that for most cases, the jurists are engaging in ijtihad, they're figuring it out for themselves. And one of the things that they, they, um, the jurists who would justify the need for ijtihad would say is they'd say, look, the Prophet's community, there's a strong condemnation in the Qur'an of, of them or, or other communities of prophets saying, we're just following tradition, we're just following what our forefathers said. So to, to answer your, your question, yeah, it's, I'd say that they would want uh, Muslims who, who are capable to, to engage with the law. That doesn't mean that Muslims today have to do that, but you know, the things, if things change towards uh, the uh, importance of the madhab or deferring to the madhab, that's, that's a development within Sunni history that uh, ultimately um, became dominant and respected, and that's for Muslims today to, to decide whether they want to do that or not. But certainly, this period, which um, is the period where a lot of the, the, the legal brilliance of, of our classical text takes shape, would find it odd. They'd, they'd find our contemporary moment odd, our post-13th century moment odd. I think so too, especially because for most of them, it seems like the idea wasn't to reach a one final conclusion, and it was supposed to be this process of seeking the truth and and, and relying on God in that process for helping us find that truth. And so in which case it see it seems very arrogant to me to to totally agree. I feel like it's the it's you know it's it's what Iblis does to it's very arrogant to think that one juristic skill has ended in our time or we are the last, you know, generation of the perfect, brilliant jurists or that our predecessors were. And it's also ironic. There's, they seem to be positing this assumption of a doctrinal finality when they, that really wasn't the case for a long time, at least. And it's very pessimistic, and I totally disagree. And I think that uh, even the in, I forget which surah, but probably many times when um, Ibrahim is, is talking to, what Allah tells um, you know, Ibrahim to tell his father to stop worshipping uh, these deities just because his forefathers worshipped it, right? And so to me, I, I see all of those examples as a criticism of doing something just because that's what our predecessors did and not continuing that process, that legacy that they, I think, did a brilliant job leaving behind. And also like, hey, jurists, what did you do wrong <laughs> for us to stop <laughs> to end for, for the process to end with you? So it's, you know, it, it kind of contradicts the whole humility thing. Yeah, and... You know, it's it's worth adding because you many of our um, Muslim listeners might say, "Well, I want the law to be certain. I want to know what God wants," um, and it's it's discomforting 
to hear that um, there's this rife uncertainty throughout the law. But, you know, Ashurazi says at one point that it's actually uh, God intentionally did that. And and we should say that they posit, these jurists posit this, this divide between theology, matters of, you know, of creed. It, it's not that, you know, debating about the existence of one God is is open to interpretation. They, they, they separate that. They keep it kind of safe. But the law is about how we should act in the world. Um, and so um, that's the area that seems to be incredibly gray, mostly gray, um, mostly uncertain. And Shirazi says at one point, he says, God did that out of his love for, for us. Not, we oftentimes, I, I should say, you know, we oftentimes hear that, uh, that statement um, from, from the prophet, uh, like differences of, a pre- of agreement are a mercy. But Shirazi says something different. He says, he says um, by making the law obscure and, and difficult to find, God increases the rewards of those who find it or who seek it, who seek it. So it's a, it's a kind of like, again, it's this pious devotional act. And of course, we know, like, one thing that we didn't mention within this, this, this uh, interview is we know Al-Ghazali in, in his Ihya was very critical of the disputation. Look at these jurists wasting their time. They're just debating all the time. Um, I had a, a public talk on my book recently, and, and um, um, somebody in the audience who was very perceptive said, you know, isn't there something about like the jurists start debating the law while Baghdad is being burned to the ground, right? Um, thinking about the Mongol invasion. So it's not to say that critique is always great, right? Critique has has its limitations. But even Rezeri himself, like he 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 lists, he summarizes all the things that his predecessors said were made the disputation either uh, necessary, like the like an obligation, um, or or a a, a, a good thing like something that's optional, but that would be good to, to pursue. Um, so depending on the text, you know, Rezeti may be very critical of, of the jurists of his time, but may, it may in a different text say, but I acknowledge that it's an absolute necessity for our community, right? This is in his, his text of Usul al-Fiqh. So final question that we ask our guests is, uh, what are you working on currently that we can look forward to in the near future? And you're welcome to also say, Nope, not doing any research right now, not doing anything that would be considered scholarly and productive. I'm working on something myself or something. That's also fine too. Uh, so no, no <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to talk about that question actually, because, you know, uh, like I said, I, I tried to write this book for my students, partly for a, a wider academic audience, but I know that ultimately it's it's very specialized. The second book is, um, is actually um, something more contemporary. And something that the the relevance to to uh, to to people's lives, Muslim, non-Muslim today, is for me a bit more evident. So it's a it's a study uh, of um, uh, the uh, the radicalization, and and I put radicalization. The, the audience can't see me, but it's in quotation marks because it's a problematic term. The radicalization of three Muslim students uh, from the University of Manitoba here in Canada, in, um, in the province of Manitoba, um, who in 2007 um, left Canada to go to the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan and join Al-Qaeda. Um, so it's a, a, a story that tries to narrate the, the, the causes for their quote-unquote radicalization and to use their story to think about the... Um, the experiences of the uh, the the Manitoban Muslim community that they left behind 
uh, during the war on terror. Um, the book right now is with um, with NYU Press. It's uh, it's it's submitted. Uh, it's in press. So I'm hoping probably late 2024 uh, it'll come out. Uh, but that's uh, that's what I'm working on right now. Oh wow! And congratulations. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Yusuf, for speaking with me about your book. And um, I'll let you know. I'm, I have no doubts that the, our audience will enjoy this interview as well. And I'll let you know when it comes out. Thank you so much, Dr. Hakani. Okay, so thank you so much for tuning in and listening to this wonderful conversation with Yusuf Sufi about his book, The Rise of Critical Islam, 10th through 13th Century Legal Debate, published with Oxford University Press in 2023. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. 